0: I appreciate so much the opportunity to be with you again, and I appreciate the invitation on the part of the brethren here that you've invited me to come and be part of your series of meetings, and I hope that you've brought your Bible with you and are eager to study with us tonight as we deal with an important question for our study. Those who are members of the Church of Christ frequently face the statement that says, those in the Church of Christ think they're the only ones going to heaven. Sometimes that comes in the form of a question. Is it true that those of you in the church of Christ think you're the only ones that's going to heaven? Sometimes it comes in the form of a statement or a charge, as if to say that's what's wrong with the church of Christ. They're the ones who think they're the only ones that are going to heaven. Sometimes it comes in the form of a joke. We've all been treated to some form of the same joke that talks about someone dying they go to heaven, And as they are being ushered through and shown the glories of heaven, they go by a certain room and they're told to be quiet because those in that room are from the church of Christ and they think they're the only ones here. And everybody laughs. And whether that comes in the form of a question or a form of a charge or a statement or the form of a joke, it deserves an answer. And a Bible answer at that, and that's what we're going to seek to do in our study tonight, is open our Bibles and look at the question And does the Bible give an answer to that question? Will only those in the church of Christ go to heaven? Perhaps you're not a member of the church of Christ and you've come tonight with that very question in your mind. Is that what these folks think, that those in the church of Christ are the only ones that are going to heaven? Or maybe you are a member of the church of Christ and you've been asked that question and you thought, I'd like to know a good way to answer that because every time I seem to answer that, that turns people off and I don't get any further in my Bible study we're going to try to approach all of that in our study tonight. So our question for our study, will only those in the church of Christ be saved? What does the Bible say about that? There are three things I want us to consider. I want to come to an understanding of the question. I want us to come to an understanding of the answer to the question. And then we want to come to an understanding of what that answer demands of us. First of all, let's talk about what the question is. Let's come to an understanding of why that question is asked, and secondly, what that question is designed to do. First of all, let's come to an understanding of the question in this sense. Why is that question asked? Why is it that people ask that question frequently, or make that charge, or maybe they tell that joke in in your presence, why is that the case? I want to suggest three reasons. Number one. It is asked because of a denominational view that people have of the church. Now what do we mean by that? Well, people have this denominational view of the church, and in their view that is, that God's people, the saved, represented by this larger oval, is, is that those people are divided into various denominations, various sects, or various flavors, if you will. And so some of God's people might be Adventists and some might be Nazarenes and some might be Catholics and some might be Presbyterians, some would be in the Church of God, and some in the Church of Christ, and some Baptists, and some Methodists, and that's a sampling of thousands of different denominations. The what you see pictured here on the screens before you is not the biblical picture, but that is the concept that people have of God's people. And their idea is that God's people are divided into various segments. God's people are divided into various divisions, various flavors, if you will, but the concept is all of these are God's people. They're just divided into various segments. And so, to them, the idea that the church of Christ, that is simply one of many different denominations. It is one of different flavors of God's people, so to speak. So for someone to answer the question, saying, yes, one must be in the church of Christ in order to be saved, if this is their concept of the church, and they have this denominational view of the church, that's like telling someone you have to eat a particular brand food in order to be healthy. Suppose some doctor said you have to eat Kroger brand food in order to be healthy, you can't buy from any other grocery, you'd say that is absurd. Why do I have to eat a particular brand food? That. Well, isn't one food just as good and grocery just as good as another? And in the mind of the person who has this denominational concept, when you answer the question in the affirmative, they are confused because this is the concept that they have. Now, we'll come back to this in a moment. I'm just trying to answer the question of why is this question asked in the first place. It is asked because of a denominational view that some have. Secondly, it is asked because of prejudice. It is sometimes made as a prejudicial charge. It is driven by the prejudice that people have against the church and the things for which it stands. The word prejudice simply suggests that someone has already decided what they believe. They've already decided their conclusion. And consequently, they have already decided based on what they have heard about the church of Christ. And that's why they ask the question. It is driven by prejudice many times. More about prejudice in a moment. But that's obvious when someone says, oh yeah, uh, you invite them to your meeting. You say, I would like for you to come over to the College New Church of Christ with us. We're having a gospel meeting. Oh, oh yeah, y'all of that group. Aren't y'all the ones that think y'all are the only ones going to heaven? Isn't that what y'all are? It's driven by prejudice. Proverbs 18 in verse 13 says, He that answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. But I want to suggest to you a third reason why the question is asked is because of ignorance. I do not say that to be derogatory toward anyone who might ask that question, but ignorance simply means that there is something that someone does not know. It doesn't matter how educated one is. This is not a reflection on intelligence. They may be the most intelligent people. They may have a doctorate, may have several doctorates, but there are things they may not know. And there some things that people do not know about the church, about the nature of the church, of what the Bible teaches about the church. And so because they are ignorant of what the nature of the church is, they are going to ask the question, and that is, will only those in the church of Christ be saved? Then we talk about ignorance, I want to suggest that maybe one of the reasons that our friends may be ignorant of that is we're not teaching enough on the New Testament church, we're not giving enough information in our teaching that is fundamental for them to draw the right conclusion. Now, I know why the question is asked. Because of this denominational view, prejudice and ignorance, but now let's talk about what this question is designed to do. What does it do? From the vantage point, at least of Satan, in designing the question, I'm not saying that everyone who asks this question has the same motive, but what is this question designed to do? Well, first of all, it's designed to put you in a dilemma. How so? Well, if you are asked that question and you answer in the negative saying, Oh, no. No, uh, I don't think that all, those in the Church of Christ, that one must be in the Church in order to be saved. That's going to be hard to harmonize with what you're teaching them, and furthermore, that's not the truth. So you say, I can't answer that way. But if you answer in the affirmative, that person you're talking to is turned off to further teaching. And that confirms the prejudice that is driving the question in the first place. So I'm wanting to reach this person, I'm wanting to talk to this person, and they ask this question, and if i ask. Answering the negative, that's not going to work, but i answer answering the affirmative. I'm just killing my Bible study that I just had. And so it's designed to put you in a dilemma. Furthermore, it is asked, and what it's designed to do is charge us with narrow-mindedness. Aren't y'all that group, aren't y'all the ones that think you're the only ones going to heaven? And it is trying to charge us with this idea of being narrow-minded. We're living in a society that is broad and is liberal. This is the day of postmodernism. The very idea that you would be an extremist, and it is designed to put you in the class of a bigot, a chauvinist, a racist, or a sexist. You don't want to be involved with any of those. And so, the very idea that you would be an extremist to say that one must be in the Church of Christ in order to be saved. But another thing, I want to suggest to you that it's designed to do, and it is: it creates prejudice. It is driven from prejudice, but it also creates prejudice. Among those who hear the question, among those who hear the charge, it causes people to be turned off. I don't know about others who, in the uh, preachers in the audience tonight who have had Bible studies, but I've sometimes been in the midst of a whole Bible study, where maybe there's two people involved in this study, and I'm... I'm beginning to see that this person here is beginning to develop greater interest and it looks like they're on the verge of obeying the gospel and the one who is less interested, about the time we're almost ready to go baptize, this person, oh yeah, I've been meaning to ask a question all along and I forgot to ask. not it, it, it true that y'all think you're the only ones going to happen? You see what they just tried to do to my Bible study? They're trying to destroy it for the one that is beginning to see the truth. They're trying to create prejudice in their heart. They're trying to drive that person further away by the answer that I may give to the question. So the question is asked sometimes because of denominational view. Sometimes because of prejudice, because of ignorance, it's designed to put me in a dilemma, charge me with narrow-mindedness, and furthermore, create even more prejudice by the question. Now, they all understand the question, don't you? It's a good question, though. That we seek to give an answer to tonight. So let's come to an understanding of the answer to the question. That's more important than really what the question is. What is the answer to that question? What is the answer to that question? Well, let's begin with this. As we talk about the answer to the question, let's define the term church. Because it may or may be that when your friend asks you a question, what's going to be in the church in order to be saved? And they have one concept of church. And you answer the question with another concept in your mind, and you're not communicating because you have two different concepts. And they can't understand your answer because your answer, you're thinking, harmonizes with the text. And the answer that you're giving to them doesn't harmonize with them because they have a different concept of what church is. So let's define church. The church has reference to people who are in a saved relationship with God. There's two things involved in that. Let's first of all talk about the church being people. The church is not a building. But the church has reference to those who make up the group or the people within that building, or wherever it is they may meet. And the church has reference to people. Here's evidence of that from the Scripture. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 3, that as for Saul, he made havoc of the church. How did he do that? Entering into every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. What he did to the men and women is what he did to the church. How he approached the church was doing it to the men and women. So the church was made up of men and women. The church is made up of people. But not just any people now. Let's go back to the fact that there is people who are in a saved relationship with God. And so let's open our Bibles now. If you haven't already got your Bible out, let's get it now and let's turn to a few passages. It will help us to understand what the church refers to. Then let's consider Acts chapter 2 and in verse 47. This is the first time in the New Testament where the church was ever referred to as already being in existence. Every reference prior to this, it was coming. Every reference after this, it points back. This is the first time the church is spoken of. And what do we learn about the church in Acts 2 and in verse 47? Well, here on the day of Pentecost, the text says in Acts 2 and 47, The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now those who were being saved were added to the church. Who is it that was in the church? Those who were being saved. Where are those who are being saved? They're put in the church. Who is it that's in the church? It's those who are being saved. Can you see they are one and the same people? Those who are being saved are added to the church. Those in the church are those who are being saved. What we're showing is that the church is those who are saved. It is people who are in a saved relationship with God. But let's go to another text that will help us to understand. It says essentially the same thing. Let's notice now the term church back in our very text in Acts 2 and verse 47. When the Bible uses this term church, it comes from a word ecclesia. You don't have to know anything about Greek to understand the word ecclesia. You know more about that word than you think you may. This term ecclesia, ek means simply out of. It's the same word from which we get the word exit that you see on these signs around. Ek means out of. The word klesia means simply to call. So the ecclesia simply has reference to those who have been called out. Now the Bible talks about being called by the gospel, Second Thessalonians two and in verse 14. That is, as the gospel is preached, calling upon men to be saved, it is calling men by the gospel. What are they called out of? They're called out of sin into salvation. I cite the entire chapter of Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, the entire chapter, is devoted to the idea of calling men out of sin into salvation, which, by the way, Ephesians 5 says that whole letter was about Christ and the church. Paul said, I speak concerning Christ in the church. When we talk about Christ in the church, you talk about coming out of sin into salvation in the entire chapter of Ephesians chapter 2. Notice in 1 Peter 2 and in verse 9, we're called out of darkness into light. The church is those who have been called out. We find people being called out of sin into salvation, out of darkness into light. So when men come out of sin into salvation, out of darkness into light, they are in the church. Who is in the church? Those come, who have come out of sin into salvation, out of darkness into light. That harmonizes with what we saw in Acts 2 and in verse 47. Now let's get a sampling from Ephesians chapter 2, if you will. I said the entire chapter is devoted to this. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 and notice in verse 16. That he might reconcile, that's another term for salvation, bringing back into a relationship with God, that he might reconcile them both, to God, we're in one body by the cross. Those who are being reconciled are where? They're in one body. Those in the one body are who? It's those who are reconciled unto God. That harmonizes with what we saw in Acts 2 and in verse 47. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that Ephesians 5 says this was about Christ and the church. And this is Paul's great essay on the church. Let's see what he said in chapter 5 and 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, because Christ is also the head of the church, and he is the, are you reading with me? The Savior of the body. Whom does he promise to save? Those in the body. Who is it that is in the body? Those that are saved. That's exactly what we saw in Acts 2, Ephesians 2. Now we see it in Ephesians chapter 5. Now let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 11. And if you don't already have your Bible open, I encourage you to do it now, because I want you to notice, a progression of thought traced through Acts chapter 11, beginning about in verse 20. Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, this is starting in verse 19, that there were those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen. And what happened with them? Well, they traveled as far as and Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Now verse 20. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Serene who, when they came to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. Somebody said, I tell you what we need today is we need to hear the preaching of the Lord Jesus. I say amen. That's what Paul was doing. That's what the apostles were doing. That's what these scattered disciples were doing. They were preaching the Lord Jesus. But what about those who heard the preaching of the Lord Jesus? Look at verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. You might underline that in your Bible. That describes people being saved, doesn't it? They hearing upon the hearing the preaching of the Lord Jesus, they believed and turned to the Lord. Then not that describe these people who were saved? They believed and turned to the Lord upon the hearing and the preaching of the Lord Jesus. What about those who believed and turned to the Lord? Well, the news of this came, verse 22, to the church at Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch. Now, verse 23, when he came and had seen the grace of God. you ever seen any of the grace of God? How do you see the grace of God? So I reaching in the pocket and say, wait a minute, I've got some right here. Let me, here's some grace. Let me, no, that's not how you see the grace of God. You don't open up a box and say, look inside, here's the grace of God. When he came, he had seen the grace of God. What do you mean he had seen the grace of God? He saw people had received the grace of God. How do I know? It's because they had heard the preaching of the Lord Jesus, and they had believed and turned to the Lord, and when they do that, they receive the grace of God, don't they? when Barnabas got there, he had seen the grace of God. He saw people had received the grace of God. Now that's describing people who are in a saved relationship with God, does it not? For hearing the preaching of the Lord Jesus and believing and turning to the Lord and receiving the grace of God. Let's go further. Now verse 24. That uh, he was a good man and he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. And Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek for Saul. And when it found him, it was that for a whole year, now watch it, watch it now, they assembled with the church. What church? What church? Where'd that church come from? Ever wonder where that church come from? You start in your Bible in Acts chapter 1 and read all the way up to this point in Acts chapter 11 and tell me where you ever read anything about a church at Antioch up to this point. You won't find anything about a church at Antioch up to this point. Where would it come from? I'll tell you where that church came from. When people heard the preaching of the Lord Jesus and believed and turned to the Lord and received the grace of God, they were the church. Those in the church were the same people who received the grace of God and were added to the Lord. They believed and were added to the Lord and turned to the Lord. But that's not all. Still reading with me in Acts chapter 11? Look at Acts 11, verse 26. They assembled with the church and they taught a great many people and the disciples, those who were disciples, were the same as people to those who were in the church. You see, those in the church are the same people as disciples, and the same ones that believed in turn to the Lord and received the grace of God. What about the disciples? They were called Christians first at Antioch. You see, those who are Christians are the same people who are disciples. That's the same people who made up the church. That's the same people who had received the grace of God and the same people who believed in turn to the Lord upon the preaching of the Lord Jesus. What I'm trying to show from Acts chapter 11 is this, that those who are in the church are the same people who are in a saved relationship with God. If I were to ask the question tonight, must one be in the church in order to be saved? That's the same question as asking in light of this context, must one believe in turn to the Lord to be saved? Isn't that the same question? Must one receive the grace of God in order to be saved? Must one be a disciple in order to be saved? Must one be a Christian in order to be saved? The church is those who are in a saved relationship with God. I want to suggest to you the terms of entrance are the same. If you were to open up your Bible and, and start making a list of everything you can find written in the pages of the New Testament, of what one must do in order to be saved, and you make that list and write it down. And then you open up your Bible and say, I want to find everything that a person must do in order to enter the church. And you make that list and you write it down and when you get through you have identical list. The terms of entrance are the same. That tells me then that the church and those who are saved are one and the same thing. Let's move to a second point. Now I know what the church is. Let's talk about the fact the Bible says there's one church. And there are three things I want you to watch for here. Here's the first. Number one, Jesus only promised one church. When Jesus was making plans to build the church, here's what he said in Matthew 16 and in verse 18. I say unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. My church, singular in number, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Jesus did not say, I'm going to build my churches, but he said, I'll build my church. Secondly, here's the second thing I want you to notice. The Bible says there is just one church. There's just one. Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Remember I said a moment ago, this is Paul's great essay on the church. He said, I speak concerning Christ in the church, Ephesians 5.31. In chapter 4 he said, there is one, oh, any one body. How many bodies, Paul? He said, there's just one. There's only one body. What is the body? Let's let the same writer, same book, same context, tell us what the body is. Chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, he said that he is the head of the body, which is the church. So what do you mean by body, Paul? I mean the church. He said there is one body, and the body is the church. The conclusion is there is one church. Jesus only promised one. Paul said there is just one. Here's the third principle. I said, watch for And that is, the Bible is silent about churches. The Bible is silent. There is no passage that says anything about churches or denominations. Get that point. The Bible says nothing about churches or denominations. When the Bible is silent, it is not the will of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Peter would say in 1 Peter 4 and in verse 1, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 Preach the Word. We learn from Hebrews 7 and verse 14, the silence of God means it is not the will of God. God was silent concerning those of the tribe of Judah being priests, of which tribe He spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And our question tonight is, if churches are in the Bible, then where is the passage? Here's the third thing. Let's talk about denominationalism again. I said we'd come back. I need to understand what the church is. I need to know that there is one church... Let's understand denominationalism is wrong. Let's go back to this concept of denominationalism. The word denomination means the act of naming a name or a designation of the name of a class, of a group, or a classification. It has to do with dividing into classes or into divisions. Now, many of us are old enough to remember the day that you went to the bank and you took a check to cash the check, the teller would ask, what denomination?" They weren't asking about the church. Now they generally ask. Large bills or small bills. But there was a time you went to the bank, and they would ask you, what denomination? Here's what that meant. That meant money is divided into various segments. We have ones, and we have fives, and tens, and twenties, and fifties, and hundreds. And that was a banking term. What denomination? There were three things implied when she would ask that question. Number one, that implied that money is divided. Now let's just suppose for a moment, there is no such things as ones and fives and tens and twenties and fifties and hundreds. The only thing we have, the only form of currency is one dollar bills. We have no change, coins, we have no fives and anything larger. Everything is one dollar bill. That's all we have. And you go to the bank and you put down your hundred dollar check and you want to cash it, and she asks, How would you like this? Well, duh, I think I'll only take it once, because that's all there is. She would not ask you what denomination, because money's not divided. We only have one form of currency. We only have one form of currency. The very fact she would ask what denomination means, that there is ones, there's fives, there's tens, twenties, fifties, and hundreds. It means money is divided. Number two, it meant one is as good as another. That doesn't mean a one and a five is equal. But one category is equal to the other. One is just as good as the other. Which would you rather have? Would you rather have 100 ones or one 100, two 50s, or would you rather have five uh five 20s, 10 10s? Which would you rather have? One's just as good as the other, isn't it? One classification is as good as another. Thirdly, it implied there are no wrong choices. Can you imagine going to the bank and, and saying, I've got a $100 check. I'd like to cash it. Uh, well, what, what denomination? Or Why would you like that? Well, I think I'll take that in $20 bills. And the vice president of the bank comes over and says, no, 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 no. You can't do that here. You do that again, we'll have you ushered out here and have you arrested. What do they do wrong? Well, there are no wrong choices. Nobody's going to say that. If I want 20s, I get 20s. If I want 5s, I get 5s. If I want 101s, I get 101s. There are no wrong choices. So we can see that when it comes to money. Let's try that now with denominationalism. If denominationalism be true, those same three principles apply. And that is, God's people are divided into various segments. If there's only one church, there is no such thing as denominationalism. Remember our illustration of the one dollar bill? If that's all we had is one form of currency, there is no denomination when when it comes to money. The same thing is true with churches. But the idea that if there is such a thing as denominationalism, that means God's people are divided. It means one is just as good as another. And thirdly, it means there are no long choices. If I decide to be in this church, or I decide to be in that church, or this one or that one, there are no wrong choices. Nobody can tell me I'm doing wrong. Those same three principles apply. Now, what's wrong with denominationalism? May I suggest four things? Number one, it's just simply not found in the Bible. I can find one church... Ephesians 4 and verse 4. But I can't find the concept of denominationalism. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Secondly, it is contrary to the pleas for unity. Jesus prayed, not only for his disciples, but for those who believe on him through the word of the apostles. That's me and you. That they may be one as we are one. Prayed for unity. He told the church at Corinth that there should be no divisions among them. If denominationalism be true, then then we have different divisions and different segments, believing and practicing different things, contrary to the plea for unity. Thirdly, it makes a difference what one believes in religion. Let's open our Bibles to Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, chapter two, beginning at verse ten. And you read this passage with me, and you see if it makes a difference what you believe. And not only does it make a difference, but you'll see the difference that it makes. Beginning at verse 10, "...with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved." One had to believe the truth to be saved. "...for this reason God would send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie." Some are going to believe a lie and be deluded, verse 11. "...that they might all be what? Condemned who did not believe the truth." but had pleasure and unrighteousness. Does it make a difference what you believe? Absolutely. And I'm also seeing the difference that it makes. And number four, it is contrary to the idea of there being one body. Ephesians 4 and in verse 4. All right, let's, let's continue answering our question. We're trying to come to an understanding of the answer. I understand what the church is, and I understand there's one, and I see denominationalism, this division concept of God's people being divided into various segments, is wrong. I want to suggest to you that God's way, by the very nature of what truth is, is narrow. Truth, by the very nature of what it is, is narrow. One of the problems people have in grasping the question and the answer to the question is, they cannot imagine God's way being that narrow. Truth, by the nature of what truth is, is narrow. If I ask you a simple question tonight, what is two plus two? The answer is so narrow, it doesn't even allow for 3.9 or 4.1. The only answer is 4. Because that's the nature of truth. It's narrow. Well, aren't we supposed to be broad-minded? Well, we can be broad-minded, but when we get through 2 plus 2 is always 4, and there will always be 4, and it will never be 3.9 or 4.1. That's the nature of truth. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. And let's understand God's way is narrow. And that's one of the concepts people cannot fathom is I can't imagine God's way being this narrow that there's only a select few that would be saved. And I want you to turn with me to the greatest sermon that was ever preached by the greatest preacher there ever was. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And when Jesus came to the closing section of that sermon, as He extended the invitation, here's what He said at verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life. Are you reading with me? And there are few who find it, the text says. There are few who find it. God's way is narrow. I want to pose a parallel question. Quite often when someone asks me that question, and they think that's so narrow-minded to, for me to have a narrow-minded view, their response is, how could, you, how could you believe a doctrine that says that only these are being saved, and, and what that would mean is these people here and those people there and those people over there and those people in this church are lost. How could you believe a doctrine that says all of those people are lost? How could you do that? And I asked them the question, do you believe that one must believe in Jesus as the Christ in order to be saved? And almost always they say, Oh, sure, sure, I think you have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God in order to be saved. And I asked them, How could you be so narrow-minded to as to exclude the Jews? Do you know? How could you believe a doctrine that excludes the Jews? And excludes the Jehovah's Witnesses? And excludes the Muslims? And anybody else that doesn't believe in Christ? And their answer is, Well, that's just, well, if that's what the Bible says and that's the revelation of God, then that's just the nature of of truth. It does exclude people. That's my point. That's my point. I want you to look at what we've considered. We understand what the church is. We understand there is one church. Denominationalism is wrong, and God's way is now in a parallel question. When we tie all of those together, the answer is quite clear that yes, one must be a member of the church of Christ in order to go to heaven. That brings us to our third and final section. Let's come to an understanding of what that answer demands of us. This is not an academic thing where we've come here tonight and looked at a question and said, you know, that's interesting and I've learned something and now let's all go home and we, we know a little more about the answer to the question. But it demands something of us. Two things I want to share with you. Number one, if that answer be true, that demands that you be in the church of Christ in order to be saved. But here's the question. How do I know that the church of Christ is the church you read about in the pages of the New Testament. How do I know that? And so as I'm looking around in the sea of religious confusion, how do I know which church is right? Let me illustrate. Let's suppose that tomorrow you're out shopping and you go to the mall, and as you enter into the mall, there is a lady there that is just frantic because she has lost her little boy. And you being the good Samaritan that you are, you say, I'll help you find your little boy. So you tear out through the, uh, through the mall and you come back and you say, you know what, I found a little boy here. And after all, one boy is just as good as another boy. And you present the boy to her and that's not going to work. She's going to say, that's not my boy. Now why does that seem so absurd when, when looking for boys? One boy is as good as another, isn't he? So you said, I should have thought better than that. So you tear out again through the mall, and you go searching through the mall, and you find the boy that you like. And you say, I think little boys are cute when they're about three or four years old. And you come bringing back a three or four-year-old boy, and you say, here is the boy that I like. Here's the boy of my choice. What's wrong with that? That's kind of humorous when we're finding little boys, but that's how people find churches, isn't it? And she's going to say, that's not my little boy. So you tear out again through the mall and you come back this time and you say, I've polled everybody in the, in the mall and i found this little boy and he is the most popular boy in the entire mall. Got to be the right one because that's one everybody likes. And she's going to say, that's not my boy. Now why is that, why is that absurd when looking for boys? But that's exactly how people go about looking for churches. I want to look for the most popular church. It's got to be right. After all, one church is as good as another, isn't it? And after all, I want to find the boy I like. That doesn't make sense. But when it comes to churches, I find the church of my choice. And finally, you go back to the mother and you say, here's where I should have started. I want to know the identifying characteristics so I can know your boy. It really doesn't matter what you like or what is most popular. What matters is the identifying characteristics. And so she says, here's the identifying characteristics of my boy. And she says, he's 10 years old. And you say, well, I really like three or four-year-old books. It doesn't matter what you like. He's 10 years old. And she says, he's 70 pounds, 15 inches tall. His name is Tom. He says, I don't like the name. But it doesn't matter if you like the name Tom. You're looking for her boy. And he has brown hair and eyes that are green. And so with description in hand, you tear out through the mall and you come back and you found uh, a 10-year-old boy who is about 50 inches tall, but his name is Jimmy, and you say, after all, names don't matter. Here's your little boy. And she says, names do matter, because I named him. Why do names matter when it comes to boys, but it doesn't matter when it comes to religion? You say, oh, I got it, I got it, I got it. You tear out through the mall and you find a little boy named Tommy, and he's 12, and you say, I've got the boy with the right name, and it's got to be the right boy, because names are all that really matter. And that doesn't work when finding little boys. Well, you get the point. We could keep going on. You haven't found the boy, too. You found a 10-year-old boy, 70 pounds, 16 inches tall. His name is Tommy. His hair brown. and eyes are green. And when you fit, I'll do one of those characteristics. Now I know I've got the right boy. And that's how we go about finding the New Testament church. Time would fail us to give every detail. But I'm not looking for the church that I like, the most popular church, or the church that uh, is one being just as good as another doesn't matter my personal preference, but I need to get my Bible out and I need to begin to search. And I'm looking for a church whose name can be found and traced to the Scriptures, Not named after a man or type of organization. But I'm looking for a church that fits the description when it comes to name, its origin, its organization, its work, its doctrine, and its practice. And so I'm looking for a church, for example, that I can find its work is found in the pages of the New Testament. And I find a church that's doing things that are not found in the pages of the New Testament Then I haven't found the New Testament church. Well, I find a church with the right name. It's got to be right because it's got the right name. But its organization may be wrong. Its work may be wrong. Just because the boy's name Tommy doesn't mean it's the right boy. The same way I go about finding this little boy is the same way I go about finding the New Testament church. I want to find the identifying characteristics and I compare it to the church that I'm looking at, and if it doesn't match, I haven't found the right church. And when it matches, I've found the church that I read about in the pages of the New Testament. So what does it demand? The answer demands that I be in the church in order to be saved, but secondly and finally, it demands that you leave and renounce denominationalism. If what we've been preaching here tonight is true, and I believe it with all of my heart, I wouldn't have preached it. What that means is we're not asking someone to swap churches as we're trying to get you to trade cars. buy our brand, and let your brand go and buy our brand. That's not what we're asking you to do. But if what we've been preaching here tonight is true, then what it demands of you is that you be in the church in order to be saved, and if you're part of denominationalism, which is not found in the pages of the Scriptures, What it demands is you leave and you renounce denominationalism. You don't want to have a part of that. You want to turn that loose? Because that's contrary to the scriptures. What have we seen in our study tonight? We've tried to come to an understanding of a question that's an important question. Why it's asked, what it's designed to do, and we've tried to come to an understanding of the answer. And then last of all, what it would demand of us. Are you in the church? Another way of asking that is, are you a disciple? Another way of asking that is, have you believed and turned to the Lord? Have you received the grace of God? Those are all the same question, aren't they? Would you become a Christian tonight? Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing? All things are ready. All things are ready.